0: There is this story that's been floating around that I think appropriately sums up the state of the American-Israeli relationship right now. It was reported in Axios back in December. The story is about a phone call between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. For months, the two had been getting on the line every couple days to talk about the war in Gaza until this particular conversation, just before Christmas. In this call, they were discussing Palestinian tax revenues, reportedly. The back and forth got so heated that Biden disconnected with a curt, this conversation is over, click.
1: I mean, we have just learned that uh, the two men didn't speak for weeks.
0: Dove Waxman is the chair of Israel Studies at UCLA.
1: So there's clearly uh, tension in that relationship. And it seems that Netanyahu's also uh, busy alienating other uh, leaders as well at the same time. It doesn't bode well.
0: Dov says there are many things for Biden and Netanyahu to disagree about at the moment. There's the immediate stuff, like aid to Gaza, or those tax revenues they were arguing about over the phone. And then there's bigger stuff, like who should lead the Palestinians when the war ends? And what should a long-term settlement even look like? Biden has been dropping hints about what he wants here, a two-state solution, which would mean creating a sovereign territory for Palestinians. Charles, thank you. Um, And, Mr. Secretary, it's great to be with you here this morning. Um, Earlier this month, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken emphasized this preferred outcome when he took the stage in Davos, Switzerland. He told New York Times columnist Tom Friedman that peace could not be on Israel's terms alone. This has to include a pathway to a Palestinian state uh, because you're not going to get uh, the genuine integration you need. You're not going to get the genuine security you need absent that. Um, Netanyahu immediately said a Palestinian state was out of the question. Fred Kaplan, Slate's War Stories correspondent, called this all but giving Biden the finger. Would you agree with
1: that? Politely, I mean, he's consistently, you know, really tried to uh, prevent a Palestinian state. Now, in doing that, in 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 following that policy, he's he's sometimes under American pressure, being willing to mouth the word Palestinian state, but he doesn't say it with feeling. He doesn't say. Well, it's not just he doesn't say it with feeling. His notion of what a Palestinian state would be is not anything resembling what people think of as an actual sovereign state.
0: Hmm. You know, it's not just Netanyahu and Biden who can't agree on whether a two-state solution is a good idea or not. Like in the op-ed sections of most major newspapers, I've heard just about every argument about the creation of a Palestinian state that there is. Like I've read that the two-state solution is dead. I've heard it's the only way forward. All of those things can't be true. Yes, I think in many ways
1: the declining belief in the feasibility of a two-state solution is uh, really at the heart of a lot of um, the conflict today because there is this, you know, among, certainly among Palestinians, a, a profound, deep sense of despair, of hopelessness. And so, you know, out of that frustration and despair, you know, that also breeds the kind of violence, our um, least support for armed resistance as Palestinians see it.
0: Is the hope for a two-state solution naive?
1: I think right now any solution seems unrealistic and naive, but the key is really to uh, support kinds of projects um, and programs that can build faith, that can restore hope. Then that creates the constituencies to support a two-state solution.
0: Today on the show, who wants a two-state solution anyway? And will it ever materialize? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. Or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time, before decades of war made the question of Israeli and Palestinian sovereignty feel so intractable. Where did the idea for two states in historic Palestine even come from? Well,
1: it was the British actually who were the first to propose what we now call a two-state solution, basically the partition of of historic Palestine, what well, was then British mandatory Palestine because the British had taken control of Palestine um, during the First world War, after you know a couple of decades of trying to get the two uh, sides go, getting uh, the Zionists and Palestinian Arabs to maybe work together to share uh, the country in the future, British efforts to do that really failed. The Palestinian Arabs staged a mass revolt against British rule, as well as against Zionist immigration. Uh, that broke out in 1936. And the British basically you know, uh, reached the conclusion that the two sides uh, were irreconcilable, and therefore that petition was necessary. So in 1937, a British Royal Commission, which is known as the Peel Commission proposed partition for the first time. Uh, that proposal went nowhere. It was immediately rejected by the Palestinian Arabs, who were overwhelmingly the majority of the population in Mandate Palestine. So they were like, why should we share? Exactly. And not only why should we share, but what right do you, the British, have to tell us to do this? I mean, you're colonial overlords. You know, this is our land, and uh, we are the overwhelming majority of the population. So on in in terms of international law, in terms of you know democracy, self determination, the Palestinians felt that you know that they should be able to determine the future of the country, and what they wanted was a single Palestinian state.
0: Hmm. So Israel itself was born in 1948. What was the feeling about separate states at that point?
1: Well, Israel established uh, announced its independence in 1948, but it was really the um, UN resolution of November 1947, the UN resolution 181, which called for the establishment of a Jewish state and an Arab state alongside it. And so that in many ways is what gives the state of Israel to this day its international legitimacy, this um, passage of this very important seminal UN resolution. And so the establishment of Israel was always linked in the international, at least in the minds of the international community, with the establishment of a state for the Palestinian Arabs as well. But of course, that state never came into being. Uh, After the the UN Resolution uh, 181 was passed, a civil war broke out between Jews and Palestinian Arabs, and that ultimately turned into an Arab-Israeli war.
0: The port of Haifa in Palestine lies shattered by bombs and strewn with dead. Victorious Haganah troops have driven the Arabs out of the beleaguered city, taking many prisoners. A few pitiful refugees rescue what few belongings they can. There's a rush for the boats as the bitter strife continues in the stricken Holy Land.
1: Ultimately, at the end of that war, uh, the Jewish state survived and in fact expanded its borders. And the Palestinian state never came into being. And instead, the Egyptians were in control of the Gaza Strip and the Jordanians were in control of the West Bank, and the Palestinians ended up living under Egyptian, Jordanian, and Israeli
0: control. For the next few decades, the question of Palestinian sovereignty took a backseat to Israel's conflict with its neighbors. Then, in 1967, Israel fought and won what became known as the Six-Day War, and they took control of Gaza and the West Bank. And for a moment, the question of a two-state solution was resurrected.
1: You know, in in some ways, the ironic outcome of the war, a war that brought about the Israeli occupation of the West Bank uh, and East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, was actually to kind of reunify the Palestinians under a single rule. Now they were all under Israeli rule, whereas before they'd been under Egyptian, Jordanian, and Israeli rule. And it rekindles Palestinian nationalism because the Palestinians reached the conclusion that the Arab states aren't going to liberate them um, and that they really have to rely upon themselves for their own freedom and self-determination. And so Palestinian nationalism is resurgent. The PLO emerges as increasingly as the voice of the Palestinian people on the international stage. And so uh, it's really in the decades after 1967 that the Palestinian issue increasingly takes center stage.
0: Well, it's interesting because after the Six-Day War, Israel could have made a choice to consider turning the territory that they took over into a Palestinian territory. Was that even considered?
1: Uh, There was certainly those voices who were arguing now is the time to make a deal with local Palestinians to have um, Palestinian statehood. But there was certainly no consensus within the Israeli government at the time. within israeli society many israelis were overjoyed that israel had conquered the areas that had been you know the heartland of the jewish nation in the bible areas of the west bank uh, and jerusalem and so while israelis were more willing to um exchange uh land for peace agreements uh with arab states um there was less willingness Uh, from the outset, really, to withdraw from the West Bank. And in fact, very soon, Israelis started settling in the West Bank. And that, of course, made it even harder then
0: for Israeli governments in later years to consider withdrawal from that territory. Years passed. And at this point, many Israelis and Palestinians showed little interest in a two-state solution. Each side was pushing for total control of the land. But then the Palestinian Liberation Organization, took one step forward. In 1988, PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat issued a statement accepting the state of Israel and renouncing terrorism. Within a few years, the PLO was meeting secretly with Israel and paving the way for the agreement that became known as the Oslo Accord. On September 13, 1993, Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin met on the White House lawn to seal the deal. even shook hands we have
1: no desire for revenge we have no we harbor no hatred towards you we like you our people people who want to build a home to plant a tree to love live side by side with you in dignity in empathy as human beings as free men we out today giving peace a chance and saying to you and saying again to you enough.
0: Back then, the New York Times reported this agreement would eventually allow Palestinians to run their own affairs. But that wasn't quite right, because Oslo didn't spell out the terms of a two-state solution.
1: It was a roadmap, but it was a roadmap that didn't specify where where the end destination was. It was very actually did not uh, mention in in the Oslo Accords Palestinian statehood. Now it was understood, I think, by the Israelis and Palestinians who negotiated these agreements, that that was ultimately where it would where the peace process would lead. But importantly, at the outset, um, all they could really agree upon
0: was that there should be a peace process. That's so interesting that they were just like coasting
1: on vibes. Well, they recognized that the the publics kind of weren't necessarily ready for the kinds of painful compromises and concessions that would be necessary. So the idea behind Oslo was to have this kind of gradual confidence building process, this gradual step-by-step process of kind of building up Palestinian self-governance, which would in turn reassure Israelis that the Palestinians were not a threat and that they could rule over a Palestinian state without posing a threat to Israel. And that in turn would in, induce more um, willingness to compromise among Israelis. And so this would be a kind of cycle of building trust, which would eventually lead to them sitting down to then negotiate the really difficult issues at the heart of this conflict. So, and that they specified a five year process for that to take place. Why didn't that happen? Well, I mean, in many ways, you know, the very nature of this process, of this gradual step-by-step process, it gave time to those individuals and organized groups who were opposed to a two-state solution, who were opposed to, you know, for one reason or another, it gave them time to mobilize against it and ultimately to sabotage it. So you had what political scientists call spoilers, groups and individuals who were determined to prevent and and derail the peace process. Like Hamas and the Palestinian side, they were the most... Uh, effective spoiler, and um, some extremist Jewish settlers on the Israeli side, um, each acting in ways basically um, through using violence and terrorism in order to undermine public support for the peace
0: process and prevent it from moving forward. And they did that very effectively. Wasn't that predictable? Like, Like, I feel like why couldn't they see ahead of time, like, this will be hard. People will push against us and put in place bumpers that would essentially keep the process on track like could the US have done done more here
1: Yes, certainly the U.S. could have done more, um, and I think both sides could have done more to rein in their own extremists and and to prevent these spoiler groups from operating. But the belief was that as the Palestinian economy would grow through investments, um, as Israelis would experience more peace and security, so those extremists would be progressively sidelined. They would be marginalised. And in fact, the opposite took place. In fact, it was the believers in a peace process who who increasingly were marginalised, and the publics on both sides really believed that the other side was violating the terms of the peace process and was not really interested in in making the kinds of compromises that they believed were necessary and so gradually you saw this declining public support on both sides even though at the outset both israelis and palestinians were overwhelmingly enthusiastic about the oslo peace process that enthusiasm you know quickly uh, evaporated as Israeli settlements continued to expand in the West Bank and Israel, Palestinian terrorism continued, not only to continued, but actually intensified after uh, the Oslo Accords were signed. We'll be right back.
0: In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country, Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot. The plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Of Taiwan with Today in the Middle East. What happens in now, Ukraine has consequences for what's happening.
1: Hello listeners, I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. But it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world
0: home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. 30 years after Oslo was signed, peace seems more remote than ever. So I asked Dove, at this point, do Palestinians and Israelis even want a two-state solution? No longer, I would say. There's The, the
1: surveys show that there's around one-third of Israelis and one-third of Palestinians who support a two-state solution.
0: That is nowhere near a majority. It's nowhere near a majority.
1: And it once was a majority. So over the years, there's been this kind of steady decline in public support on both sides for a two-state solution. But it's important to note that I think a major reason why there's uh, public support uh, for a two-state solution has steadily declined... Is because each side believes the other side doesn't want it, and <laughs> they look at the other side. and They think it's never the other. Then they don't want it. It's not going to happen. It's not feasible, and therefore support is declining. I, I don't think we should, you know, just read from these polls and assume that because there's relatively little support today around a third that that's setting the stone. Um, we've seen in the past that things can shift. That that ev- developments can shift public opinion, and leaders can shift public opinion.
0: But even before now, some observers were looking around at polling numbers like what you're alluding to, people losing faith in the two-state solution. There have been all kinds of other things proposed, like a one-state solution, a confederal solution, which I've heard called the 1.5-state solution, and there's even a three-state solution out there. Can you just walk me through what these ideas actually entail and whether any of them are viable?
1: Yeah, so the main alternative historically to a two-state solution, to partition, has been uh, what's called a one-state solution. That's always been a kind of alternative, but never one that has had um, support in the international community or among Israelis and Palestinians themselves. The fear among Israeli Jews is essentially a one-state solution is the end of Zionism, was the end of Israel as a Jewish state. That given the fact that already today there's roughly, um, they're roughly equal in number and if not Palestinian Arabs, outnumbering Jews, they could essentially vote the Jewish state out of existence. And that would leave Israeli Jews potentially as a minority in this single state at the mercy of a Palestinian Arab majority, whom they have been locked in conflict, a bitter conflict for, for decades. So there isn't a great deal of trust there, to put it mildly. So for Israeli Jews, you know, a one, a one state solution is, is really seen as a recipe for national suicide, um, to put it bluntly. How does a confederal
0: solution address some of those concerns?
1: A confederal solution maintains Israel as a, as a separate state. So you'll still have two sovereign states, Israel and Palestine next door in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um so in that sense it is a two state solution but unlike the kind of traditional two state solution a confederal solution sees these two states as interlinked and very much kind of wedded together on an ongoing basis so there would be eventually an open border which would allow people living in one state to kind of travel work uh, come and go socialize in the other state so it maintains the ability for Israelis uh, for Jewish Israelis to access holy sites that they would want to access in the West Bank, for example, and it allows Palestinians living in the West Bank to, you know, visit friends and relatives in in Israel.
0: Sounds complicated, though. It's like a two state
1: EU. It is exactly. It is exactly the model here is the EU and uh, the way in which the EU, you know, maintains. The existence of separate states but they share a common currency they they share they're in, in the economic union they have open borders and even more importantly citizens of one eu country can live as residents in another and so this also if if applied to the israeli palestinian context this could potentially alleviate the problem of jewish settlers and of palestinian refugees wanting to return to israel because you could say potentially jewish settlers now living in the west bank could stay there only they would remain as citizens of israel but they would be residents of palestine so you don't have to remove large numbers of settlers from the west bank under this idea and that is one and the, one of the main reasons why people are so pessimistic about a two state solution is because there are now you know somewhere in the region of 700,000 israelis living beyond the green line and around 500,000 in the west bank
0: do any of these alternatives seem desirable to you
1: Well, I actually think that a confederal approach is the most desirable insofar as it acknowledges the presence of two nations who both want national self-determination. So it acknowledges that, but it also recognizes that the two nations are too intermixed and that they have to figure out some way to share the land. And so I think ultimately that recognition is really important that you can't just separate. You can't just have like Jews here, Palestinians there. That's not going to work. Um, but the I think ultimately at the, where where we are today, uh, any solution seems distant, given the you know the fear,
0: the suspicion, the animosity on both sides. It's interesting, though, because in the months since October seventh, obviously peace seems very, very far off, but also more urgent than it's been, like so strangely closer in some ways. That's right. I think, um, I think you know,
1: one of the reasons why many people were despairing in recent years was because the status quo of, you know, decades of Israeli military occupation or over the West Bank, Israeli blockade of Gaza, that seemed relatively stable. It was hard to see how things might change. I mean, the Arab states were, you know, making diplomatic agreements with Israel. Israel was in, you know, had largely you know forgotten about the palestinian issue and the international community and even the americans were no longer really trying to push for a peace agreement that has changed i think there is, is now at least around the world if not among palestinians and israelis themselves a, a recognition that the status quo it cannot continue um that is already changed in very dramatic uh, ways and therefore that it, there needs to be A solution to this conflict, that conflict management, um, simply trying to, you know, contain the conflict and prevent it from escalating, that approach is not going to work.
0: Here's something I couldn't stop thinking about when I started to mull all the history here. For Palestinians, every time the two-state solution began to enter the conversation and become real, they lost a little bit more land, sometimes a lot more land. Like if you go back to 1948, Palestinians were feeling shortchanged because under the UN agreement, they'd only have control over 45% of the land they were living on, even though they were a majority of the people in the region. But if you fast forward, you know, if you look at, say, a Palestinian state confined to the West Bank and Gaza, which is where we're sort of what we're sort of talking about now potentially... That would be even smaller territory, like half the size of what the UN originally allocated. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the kind
1: of, you know, in a way, the tragedy of the Palestinian national movement. Israelis would argue that that's the fault of the Palestinians for rejecting these past agreements, that had the Palestinian national movement in 1937 accepted the Peel Commission's proposal, the Palestinians would have have enjoyed decades of statehood had they done so in 1947. Uh, they would have, ex- they would had a state, and so each time this offer is ret- come to them, Israel is is larger, and the future Palestinian state is smaller, and that's why Israelis believe that Palestinians will maybe eventually kind of recognize this that 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 time isn't on their side, but the Palestinians have, in many ways, concluded that the Palestinian state that would be offered to them today or in the future will be a geographically fragmented state. It will not necessarily have any sort of territorial contiguity. It may not have full sovereignty. And so is that a state that they really want? Maybe their best option instead is just to wait um, and gradually um, outnumber Israelis and then the pressure for Israel to grant them Uh, full citizenship and and equal rights will eventually become unbearable as Israel faces growing international pressure and sanctions on isolation. And so ultimately, you know, they're better off waiting for uh, that option and and to realize their full rights in all of historic Palestine than accept the offer of a shrunken and uh, restrained Palestinian state that might be put forward to them in the next few years.
0: You're not giving me a lot of optimism here you're saying if if they're not there now both sides have been so hurt nothing is set in
1: stone i mean the important thing um you know it looks today like there's, it's entirely a hopeless situation, but we know in, in, in both in the history of this conflict and other conflicts that things do change, sometimes for the worst, but out of that also can come new possibilities. I mean, the Arab-Israeli conflict is, has, has largely ended, and I think although it's going to be harder to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that is also possible, and we shouldn't kind of ever give up hope for that. Despair is really not an option. I understand why Palestinians and Israelis they have every reason. Given them the suffering that they're going through, I think for those of us outside, you know, we can't, we have to kind of maintain some, some hope. Otherwise, we're, con, you know, consigning them to
0: despair. Dove Waxman, I'm so grateful for your time. I've learned a lot in this discussion. Thanks.
1: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation.
0: Dove Waxman is a professor of political science. He's also the director of the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's written numerous books on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including "The Pursuit of Peace" and "The Crisis of Israeli Identity: Defending, Defining the Nation." And that's the show. What next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the senior director of podcast operations here at Slate and I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts So, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host
1: of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week.
0: New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.